This is Science Friday. I'm Flora Lichtman, and we're continuing our time travel adventure. It's 70 million years ago. You're running through a hot, swampy forest, stumbling through ferns, and on your tail is a hungry T-Rex. What do you do? Run? Hide? Climb a tree? Accept your fate? Do you have any chance of escaping? Well, science says maybe. This magic treehouse-esque experiment is the premise of a new book, How to Survive History. We'll travel back in time to world-changing events, think the asteroid that wiped out the dinos, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the construction of the pyramids, and we're going to play a game. If you were plunked down in the middle of one of these scenarios, what would it take to survive with 2020 hindsight and science on your side? Joining me now to play this out is Cody Cassidy, author of How to Survive History. He's based in San Francisco. Cody, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Cody, how did you get the idea for this book? You know, I was um, searching around for a story to write for uh, Wired magazine, and I, I stumbled upon a study that seemed to suggest I could outrun a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It was a, it was a study that looked at the sort of distance of their footprints and the height of their pelvis and, and sort of determined that their top speed was around uh, 12 miles an hour. And so I, I sort of went outside and, and tested that. And I, I didn't quite uh, run faster than that to my disappointment. But when I looked into it further and um, sort of looked at the advantages that prey have to their faster predators when they're being chased, I sort of came to the conclusion that I, I probably could outrun the, the full-grown Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I had so much fun thinking about that. And I sort of uh, realized that I could apply those sort of same lessons to other ancient disasters. And it was a sort of fun way to uh, not only learn about uh, these disasters, but sort of learn about the cultures and the history and, and, and have a lot of fun uh, doing it along the way. I'm still surprised that you have a chance against a T-Rex. I'm going to put myself in those shoes. I, so I'm not athletic, okay? I'm pretty sure I couldn't get to 12 miles per hour, although I, don't, I really don't have a sense of how fast it is. But how would I do it? If I'm confronted with a T-Rex, what do I do? So, for, for example, a brisk jog is about, is about seven miles an hour. So it is a little bit, it is a little fast, okay. but it's, it's attainable. And, and the way I think you might be able to do it is if they, they attach some accelerometers to uh, Cheetah and Impala. And even though the Cheetah is, 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 runs at 53 miles an hour and the, and the Impala ran at about 40, the Impala gets away at about two-thirds of the time. And it does it by actually uh, a counterintuitive strategy. It doesn't run at its actual top speed when it's escaping the cheetah. It, it sort of maintains its maneuverability. And as the cheetah catches up and gets within one or two steps, it sort of swerves. Like zig zigzagging? Is that what I should picture? Exactly. It actually is a strategy I employed on the uh, on the playground when I run from <laughs> uh, faster bullies, and I'd sort of forgotten about this. Um, but so it, judging by those numbers, uh, you should be able to run, escape even if you're a little bit slower than the, than the 12 miles per hour that the T-Rex runs. How do we know that T-Rex wasn't fast? It feels so counterintuitive because they seem like such a mega predator. Why do we know that they, yeah, were topping out at 12 miles per hour? Well, they couldn't actually run. The, the T-Rex was about 6,000 pounds. Uh, so it would have shattered its leg if both legs were off the ground at, at any one point. So it was more of a fast walker. Oh, wow. And they couldn't really have walked much faster than, than 12 miles an hour. Although I should add that that is only the, the full-size uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. Uh, it actually was a much more dangerous animal to humans when it was a teenager, and that was only because it was only about 2,000 pounds. 
and in that case could actually run at about 33 miles an hour, which, which suggests even if you employ the tactics of the Impala, unless you're sort of a, a top high school track star, uh, you'd be in trouble running and, and it would be best to hide. Okay. So if I, yeah, if I run into a, like a teenager T-Rex, I either have no chance or I need to find a hiding spot. Yes. You need to employ uh, different strategies than running, <laughs> <laughs> maybe climbing a very tall tree. So one of my favorite chapters in the book was the one about surviving the Chicxulub asteroid, the one that smashed into the earth and um, killed off the dinosaurs. Put me on earth the day of impact. Like, what would it be like leading up to that boom? This Surprisingly, you would have seen it. This is about 66 and a half million years ago. And if you were in the Northern Hemisphere, you would have surprisingly seen it coming a few <laughs> days in advance. At first, it would have it would have looked sort of like the faint star in the sky. And then the next night, it would have sort of been the brightest. And then the next night, it would have sort of outshined the moon and then the sun. And then it would have hit Earth, in this case, the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, with the energy of about 100 million times the largest thermonuclear weapon ever detonated. And so the, the, the results were, were catastrophic and sort of comprehensive. It, uh, it vaporized the shallow sea above the Yucatan and sort of hit the bedrock of the earth, sort of like with the same effect that a cannonballer would have hitting a pool. Sort of, it sort of gouged a, a wall of earth 20 miles high. Uh, 20 miles high? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and it sort of the cavity breached earth's mantle. And, and so all that, that earth, that 20 mile high wall of earth would have sort of rained back down um, globally. The most catastrophic effect was some of the rock down there is actually oil and sort of coated Earth's stratosphere in sort of a black paint and, and chilled sunlight dropped uh, on Earth by about 90% and, and global temperatures fell by almost 50 degrees. Because that black paint that was kicked up from the asteroid is now in the sky blocking the sun? Exactly. And it's, it's above the rain clouds. So even though it ignited sort of global fires, the, the, that ash sort of was wicked down by rain. But because the, the sort of uh, paint was above, was above the clouds, it, it stayed up, it stayed aloft for, for almost 10 years. Okay. So if I wanted to survive, where do I need to be? So I should, I should note that this is one of the more difficult ones to survive. I, the, the, one of the exercises I spoke with took quite a lot of convincing uh, before he, would, he gave me even a survival plan. Like the but, chances are <laughs> slim even if everything goes right. Exactly. Okay. But your best chance is to be um, on the opposite side of the world uh, of the impact. And this is uh, in somewhere near the equator, uh, about where Indonesia is today, where it didn't totally freeze. And there were some animals that, that did survive, particularly animals that nested in the ground. So I would suggest finding a deep cave because there's sort of a rain of fire is, is going to come down on the earth as, as all that earth re-enters the atmosphere. If I were on the other side of the earth, would I feel the impact? Would I hear it? Like, what, would I know it had happened? Yeah. The, uh, the sonic boom of it entering the atmosphere actually reverberated around the globe uh, a couple of times. The impact also rang Earth like a bell, uh, which sort of fractured earthquakes sort of broke out globally as it sort of dislodged all the uh, tectonic plates. So you would certainly know it happened. And then you would have a little bit of time to get in your cave. And, and you should also get above the, um, above the coastline because thousand foot tsunamis like wrapped around the Gulf of Mexico and, and a 600 foot high wave hit Europe. And, and uh, it would be a little bit smaller on the, on the uh, where it is now Indonesia, but, but certainly a, a danger as well. Okay, so I'm in my cave, then what? So even if you survive the initial impact, the sort of rain of fire and the, and the, the global tsunamis, uh, the, the cooling earth 
eventually kills land animals larger than a raccoon. It kills all the dinosaurs and then the birds. And uh, our ancestors survived, but they were about the size of a shrew. So uh, food becomes an issue for a, for a large animal like yourself. But in the river estuaries, I would suggest you, you hunt because uh, turtles did survive and, and other animals, uh, fish and, and uh, of course, sharks, though those will be harder to catch. <laughs> so you have to survive about, about 10 years. But after that, the, the earth did make a recovery. On a pescatarian diet, I feel like I could make that work. <laughs> yeah, it's um, our, you know, our ancestor did, and they were about the about the size of a shrew at the time. Uh, so I suggest not eating them because <laughs> it's actually unclear how many of those did survive. So you might have some sort of, sort of catastrophic butterfly effects there, but but <laughs> there might be enough. Okay, so I want to hear a little bit about the research process for this book. Did you just have like a million strange Google searches <laughs> while you were writing it? I did have, uh, of course, yes, a lot of uh, strange Google searches and I sort of, a lot of sort of science papers and, and reading how the different uh, impacts affected, affected the earth, like such as the, the asteroid. But I think my favorite part was, was sort of asking the experts, people who had worked on the ground, such as in Pompeii, or what they would have done if they were there. I sort of found those answers the most interesting and, and some, in many cases surprising. What was the, the fact that surprised you the most that you learned? Well, <laughs> speaking of Pompeii, when I, when I, when I spoke to the archaeologist who's, who's done quite a lot of work there and I asked him how he would have survived, he suggested actually you run toward the volcano, which uh, <laughs> I, found, I found surprising. But he said he'd, the timing of the, of the eruption and, and, and the, way the, the, wind, the way the wind blew that morning would actually mean that if you ran uh, toward it and then past it, you would uh, have the best chance. Well, let's go to Pompeii. So you start this chapter at a bakery. So let's say I'm ordering a square of focaccia and a few miles away, Mount Vesuvius starts erupting. Would I notice? Like, would I know that that's happening? Certainly. Yeah. If, if you've ever been to, <laughs> if you ever been to Pompeii, that sort of Mount Vesuvius sort of looms over the town. It's only about five miles away. And, and so immediately the earthquake would hit. And uh, the gas would have started. The gas cloud would have started rising. But fortunately, the the early stages were not the most dangerous. Um, the because the wind blew uh, the cloud that morning, it sort of rained a, the ash on Pompeii. As, but it sort of fell as a snow initially. But th- this was the the most important period. It sort of some people decided to take cover from the falling ash, and some people decided to run. And, and certainly, running was was the best option. Okay. So what what should I do? I should not stay put. Where should I go? Well, because the wind blew uh, south that morning, it actually carried the cloud further, uh, and, and Pompeii is south of the, of the eruption, it carried the cloud further in that direction. So even though your initial <laughs> instinct, which in many cases I should add is probably the right one in volcanic <laughs> eruptions, but in this case <laughs> would not have been the best decision. We know, for example, Pliny the Elder died in uh, Stabia, which is a good uh, few miles south of Pompeii. So you, you have a an option to run east, but that is uh, blocked by mountains. Uh, so it would make your escape slower. You could try to sail away, and certainly some did, but the, the wind was against you, and, and there were some sort of uh, small tsunami waves that, were, that the earthquake caused. So really, the best option is to run past the volcano. If you run, there's a coastal road. It takes you to uh, the town of Herculaneum, which is right at the base of Pompeii and a sort of uh, luxury resort for Romans, but you shouldn't actually stop there because the first pyroclastic surge, which is what happens when uh, the volcano loses, uh, the gas cloud loses its sort of power and, and instead of rising into the stratosphere, falls to the, falls to the ground and rolls sort of like a, 
a superheated sandstorm uh, moving at highway speeds. It's a it's a cloud hot enough to melt lead. Fun. <laughs> that first hits Herculaneum around uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. You have to keep going. Does that head to Does that head to Pompeii too? It does. Yeah, that hits Pompeii later okay. in the afternoon. Uh, which is uh, what eventually buried the the town and, and why we see all those uh, perfectly preserved sort of plaster encasings of, of the bodies there and w- why you should not stay there and take cover. Uh, but if you make it all the way to Naples, which is about uh, uh, 13 miles and you have five hours, so that's like a, sort of a fast walk, you should be fine. So, uh, But it's quite hot, I should add, so just make sure to stay hydrated. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. I'm Flora Lichtman, talking with author Cody Cassidy about his new book, How to Survive History. Let's zip over to ancient Egypt uh, during peak pyramid building time. If I wanted to be part of this great infrastructure project, how would I get conscripted to work? So conscripted actually is the right word for for ancient Egypt and, and building the pyramids. Those who built, carried the rocks were actually probably farmers along the Nile and uh, were conscripted sort of like... Um, a modern conscription army during the summer when the, the Niles flood uh, floods the farmlands there and makes the, the land so fertile, but also idles the, the, farm, the farmers. So Pharaoh Khufu had this uh, huge workforce that was sort of uh, with kind of nothing to do during the summer, and he would conscript them to, to lift the, the rocks of his Great Pyramid. That sounds like a terrible job. How did people feel about it? You know, surprisingly, uh, it looks like there was a sort of a spirit to corpse kind of um, <sighs> developed amongst these, amongst these workers. Um, they would have team names. We can see these sort of graffitied into the, the pyramid. One of them was called Khufu's Drunkards. They also ate quite well. There's a tremendous amount of beef bones that have been found, which was a expensive meat um, and sort of indicative of the, the level of resources that uh, Khufu devoted to, to building his Great Pyramid. What are the risks to my survival? <laughs> well, there are quite a lot of risks. There's a cemetery at the base of the pyramid with workers, and many of them so show significant fractures of the arms and legs. Um, and I, in this book, I sort of focus on the heaviest stone in the in the pyramid, which is 80-ton black granite rock found almost 200 feet up. It uh, forms the roof of the of Khufu's tomb. Hauling a rock of that size would uh, have a lot, tremendous number of risks. It certainly violates OSHA's recommendations of, of, of hauling 50 pounds. Um, it, it suggests that there were probably at least 300 workers were hauling this up a ramp. It was about 11% grade. And when you're pulling that much weight, there's actually quite a lot of danger of the rope, of the rope snapping. Um, there have been some, some really gruesome disasters when there have been some tug-of-war, uh, large tug-of-war teams. And, and so I suggest not standing at the front of that, of that hauling team because if a rope snaps, it actually can hurtle back towards the polars at a, at a sort of fast enough speed to actually remove limbs. So uh, certainly stand back and uh, stand at the back and, and don't lift with your back either. Use your legs. Is there still debate about how the pyramids were built or are people settled on aliens? <laughs> There's certainly no debate about the fact that they use ramps. The biggest debate is the design of the, of the ramp on how to pull up the, the stones. Um, they certainly sat stones on sleds and then use this sort of mud slicked surface to to haul them up. But if you speak to the archaeologists who've, who've actually been there and, and worked on it, they they would they suggest to me that there's really no debate at all. They actually see the quarry at the base of the pyramids. It's still there if you if you visit it. And there is a ramp leading up from the base of the quarry to the surface. And if you if you continue that trajectory, it would arrive at the that basically about the mid height of the pyramid, about 200 feet up at about an 11 percent grade. And then they think it just sort of 
did one loop around the back of the pyramid to the top. So, you know, there's no shortage of existential threats and catastrophes in the world that we live in now. In looking back and doing this book, has this made you think differently about our current predicaments? Totally. I think a lot of these disasters, I was surprised, repeat themselves. Um, you know, uh, Pompeii is, is still within the, the shadow of an active volcano. We, I still live on a, on a fault line. I think a lot of these disasters surprisingly repeat themselves, and, and, the less, and, and they repeat themselves in, in a similar way. Hopefully this has less uh, relevance toward today, but sort of the sacks, the way cities were sacked and, and the way famines occurred also usually occurred in the same way. And the, the, the instructions were actually the same, in which case a lot of times I didn't, I only wrote about one category of disaster in this book because were I to write about medieval sacks or medieval famines that occurred hundreds and sometimes thousands of years apart, it would, it would actually be similar uh, instructions. So that is that was one thing that I think echoes today and would echo forward. Cody Cassidy is the author of How to Survive History. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. To read an excerpt from Cody's book, visit sciencefriday.com slash survive.